HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Huertas, a Basque-influenced restaurant in NYC's East Village. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C.com. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. Good evening, and welcome to the very first episode of 2020, and official start to our winter season here at Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Bettina Elias Siegel is a mom of two and a nationally recognized writer and advocate on issues related to children and food policy. She's the author of The Lunch Tray, a blog, and one of my personal go-to resources for any and all things related to kids and food, in school and out. She spearheaded three successful Change.org petition campaigns related to school children and food, making her one of the most successful petitioners in the organization's history. Her first book, Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World, was recently published this past November, and I'm thrilled it's brought her to the show today. Hi, Bettina. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. Okay, so you have a really, we're just going to jump right in. You have a really interesting background. Can you um, tell us a little bit more about how you became involved in writing about uh, kids' nutrition issues? Sure. Um, it, it definitely was very unexpected. I would never have guessed I'd you know, be doing this. Um, I actually am trained as a lawyer, and I practiced um, back in the 90s in New York City um, 
for about nine years. And my focus, at least in the latter part of my legal career, was on marketing and advertising of food and other consumer products um, in-house at a big conglomerate. And then, you know, after we had our first child, um, I actually retired from the practice of law. We ultimately moved to Houston. I um, was a stay-at-home mom. I kind of dabbled in freelance writing, and I thought that was going to be my new career. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got involved in, in school food reform here in Houston in, in our um, public school district. And that was a very kind of interesting and eye-opening experience for me. And I think maybe because I had that background in the law, I was just, you know, willing to kind of dive in and learn more about the National School Lunch Program. And and everything I was learning and the challenges I was facing as a mom of two young kids who at that time were 8 and 10 um, all kind of came together with the with the freelance writing I was doing, and I decided to start the Lunch Tray, the blog that you just mentioned. So that was really the thing that kind of kicked this off for me, um, and I've now been writing about nothing but kids and food for um, almost a decade. And I love that you your work started at the Houston Independent School District, which last season for my listeners, um, I went a friend, you know, a shout out <laughs> to last season. I interviewed Betty Wiggins, who's now the head of uh, the school lunch program at Houston Independent, and um, it all kind of comes full circle. So I really was really excited to have you on to kick off this season. I and love give that. a different Thank perspective. You. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so this is your first book. What um, What made you decide to write it, and what was what was your goal in doing so? Well, you know, as I said, I have been writing about kids and food, both for the lunch tray and other publications, for for a long time now. And you know, I I feel like it, I had this kind of unique vantage point after a while. Like you know, as a blogger. I am talking to parents constantly in, on social media and in my comment section. One of the awesome things about the lunch tray is school food professionals have come to the blog and, mm-hmm. and will share their experiences with me in the comments and also sometimes in personal private emails and things like that. I've become, you know, really involved with food policy advocates. Um, so I just started to feel like I had a, a, a really – nice kind of bird's eye view of how we're feeding children in America, how, how we might make that better, and the frustrations of parents, the frustrations of school food professionals, the great work of food policy people. And it just seemed like, you know, that's a lot more than you could put in a blog post. And, right. and that was really what led me to write the book. I just felt like after all of these years, I really did have something I thought might be of value to offer. So this book is all about kid food, per the name. Yes, as the title is pretty clear about. Um, I want to get two terms kind of like pretty well defined because we'll be discussing them in the episode quite a bit. And those are, the first is processed food. When we talk about what do you mean when you talk about processed food? Um, and then the second is what, how do you define kid food? So those are both really good questions, and the first one especially is so important, and literally the first thing I did when I sat down to write Kid Food was write this introductory note, like, what do I mean by processed food? Because Mm -hmm. I think it is a very squishy term, and if you just start, you know, kind of wildly and vaguely criticizing, quote-unquote, processed food, you really run into trouble very quickly, especially with the food industry that likes to point out, you know, baby carrots are processed and Mm -hmm. frozen, you know, frozen berries are processed, and obviously we have no problem with those foods. So So the definition I use in the book, and I think it's one that's really gaining a lot more currency um, in the media and in in, um, food science, you know, food policy and food science, is the definition of ultra-processed food um, that was first put forth by Carlos Montero, who's a a food policy expert in Brazil. And he has a very specific uh, classification system for, for 
um, how you evaluate the processing of, of foods, starting with like just sort of whole unprocessed food all the way down to category four, which is ultra-processed. And that's really the type of food that I'm taking issue with in the book. Um, I don't want to get super in the weeds, but the gist of it is, you know, ultra-processed food is industrially produced. It usually has five or more ingredients. Often those ingredients are themselves industrially processed, like, you know, soy protein isolates or things right. like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he also sort of weaves into the definition some externalities like it's often you know aggressively advertised to us that it often contains health claims on the packaging it's meant to replace whole food it's meant to to kind of displace those foods in our diet so that's the definition i use in kid food okay so that's processed food. And then to, add, you know, to answer the other question, what is kid food? I sort of fall back a little bit on, you know, we know it when we see it. I think parents yeah. totally get what you mean by kid food. I did actually take a, a reader survey just to kind of um, refine that a little bit and, and asked people, what does that mean to you? And, of course, I got all the answers you'd expect, like goldfish crackers and um, chicken nuggets and, um, you know, pizza and, you know, anything in an animal shape and beige food and all of that stuff. But basically, to me, it's that subset of ultra-processed food, which is, you know, particularly appealing to children in that it's like especially it's not very challenging to the palate it's you know heavy in the salt sugar fat it's often a lot of refined grains and presented in a way that is very attractive to kids I think that's a key point there's there's almost always like a little element of fun or excitement or games or cartoon characters that make it especially alluring to children mm-hmm. what do you mean challenging to the palate What's, what, are we talking about like broccoli well, I mean, obviously or? there's great variability in in children's acceptance of flavors but, you know, I think um, kid food, this cultural construct, buys into the notion that kids can't handle anything particularly spicy or bitter, you know, any, any flavor notes that are, like, uh, in any way kind of distinctive. And so that's why we have this kind of, you know, it's, it's just purely pleasing. It's kind of universally palate-pleasing. Right. Okay. So these are the issues. These are the, the, um, the items that we're going to find on my favorite thing in the world, I'm being totally sarcastic, which is uh, kids' menus. Like, I have been obsessed with kids' menus, like the idea and where this concept came from for a really long time. And I completely, I really appreciate how you did a bit of a deep dive into into what what kids' menus are and when they became a thing. Can you tell us a little I, about I that? I love that you're, you were interested in that, too. And I actually had a, a reader of the book email me to say, like, oh, my God, I've always wondered yes. about that. You know, so we're, like, we're, we're not alone in our food nerd, yes. you know, <laughs> um, status. But, yeah, I really did wonder, like, when did these menus start to appear and what was on them? You know, I really, really wanted to know. And so the book was a perfect excuse to dive into that research. Um, and so what I learned is they, they actually were a response to prohibition, which is so interesting. Um, apparently, yeah. before prohibition, it was very unusual for kids to be taken to restaurants. It, you know, that was considered kind of an adult um, environment. And, and, and restaurateurs actually did all kinds of things to discourage people from bringing their children yeah. if they even wanted to. Um, and, but after prohibition, you know, now restaurants can't sell alcohol anymore. They've kind of lost that adult cachet that alcohol gave them. And there's a lot more competition now in the restaurant industry because bars are starting to switch over to selling food. And in general, there's also kind of like a shift in parenting around that time when, when kids are starting to occupy a more central role in family life. Like parents are starting to take kids out and about and not keeping them in the nursery the, the way they might have in prior generations. And so all of that kind of comes together and children's menus start appearing in restaurants. But what was really interesting is 
the whole goal of them was to reassure mothers that they could that they could get a a particularly healthy and sort of child uh, suitable meal while out in a restaurant. In other words, at that time, based on the kind of burgeoning nutrition research that was happening, you know, moms who were, you know, educated enough to be on the receiving end of that information were worried that the sort of sophisticated, delicious food on a, on a regular menu wasn't suitable for their little children. And so the, the, the industry at that time would make a real point of putting especially healthy child appropriate, you know, by the standards of that day, food Mm -hmm. on their menus. And you talk about how it was interestingly very vegetable heavy, right? Like there were a lot of vegetarian entrees. For the kids. I was so baffled at first because yeah. I was going through these old menu archives, which are super fun. If you if oh my you share my food and nursery, yes. it's incredibly fun. Yes, and um, <laughs> I kept seeing these entrees called vegetable plate, vegetable luncheon. I had no idea what that was, and I really I was digging around. I asked, you know, historians in this area. Eventually, I actually looked at cookbooks of the same era, and that that's how I learned that they were essentially like a vegetarian entree or a plate of hot or cold vegetables. Really fascinating that that was considered a suitable entree for kids. It wasn't the only entree offered, but it, but right. it did show up quite a bit, which is so crazy. How, to uh, yeah. menus. how things have changed. Um, yes. <laughs> you, you also gave a few examples. So I think kids' menus, and I think, you know, we are all the, the like – the noodles, the grilled cheese, the burger, the pizza, the fries, of course, there's always there are chicken nuggets. Those are like, you know, quote on the kids menus. But then you, t- you pull out a few examples that are worth, I think, like bringing up because this I mean, it just made my stomach turn in a way that I, I haven't seen these combinations, but like friendlies, candy filled pancakes right. and their sharks in the water drink, which is what, like candy and the soda? <laughs> I think candy. it's like a blue-colored Sprite or 7-Up kind of drink, <sighs> and then they put the little candy shark in it, and then they put red syrup, like the blood, in the water. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> creative. Well, the reason why that really caught my attention is, um, you know, I cite in the book the, 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 the restaurant industry's publications in the 1920s and 30s were reporting on these, this newfangled invention called the children's menu. And one of the reporters said, you know, children love color. So therefore, mm-hmm. you know, some of these really innovative restaurants are putting their vegetables in the shape of a rainbow. And then, you know, fast forward to today and children's love of color is being satisfied with these sharks in the water drink, you know, with yeah. the blue dye. It's so it's just... really like a very interesting way of seeing how far we've come from those menus origins. Yeah. And I just can't think of anything like worse for you than soda with actual candy in it. Like that just I know, right? blow. It just like blows everything else out of the water. It's impressively right. awful. So, so, um, I think that the th- one of the things that I love so much about this book and like the approach that you took is that in summarizing the problem, you really took a comprehensive approach, right? So you talk about the food environment as a whole, and I think I found this really f- refreshing because I think sometimes, you know, we get in our silos of like really zoomed in on an issue um, or two, but you kind of talk about how it's not just – um, school food or, you know, kids' menus or marketing. Can you tell us how you kind of, are, like, came to this conclusion of the, the problem is just so much bigger than any one thing? Yeah, that, that was really important to me. Like, I think it would be very easy to write the book just bashing big food, for example, and laying the whole problem of our children's poor diet at, at the feet of corporations. Like, you could write that book and that would be um, – you'd, you'd 
be making a lot of very valid points. But I think we really do have to step back and acknowledge that this is also a cultural problem and that parenting, you know, plays a role. um, Our our parenting style has changed um, from prior generations, for better or worse. I'm not standing in judgment of it, but we we do give children far more autonomy over their food choices than we ever did, statistically Mm -hmm. speaking. Kids have far more control over literally the products that we put in our grocery cart than they ever did, and that doesn't typically you know, bode well for their, you know, their nutrition. Um, You know, all kinds of factors can play into this. If classrooms are overcrowded, that may increase the number of teachers, you know, handing out candy rewards because that's a quick way of, you know, keeping control of a large classroom. Standardized testing has has led to, you know, schools passing out, um, you know, unhealthy but but sugary foods to boost kids' attention. I was, that was very surprised. Even that. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that was very surprising to me. I'm also so I just like, think it's, you know, you do have to take a big picture view. You mentioned school food. Well, you know, schools in essence have to compete with the food that children are eating off campus. So you mm-hmm. can't look at school food in a vacuum. You have to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. And it's all the kind of avoid, I think a lot of it is driven by this idea of like picky eaters. So, you know, in a, in a de- like indeed, right, when children's menus were invented as a thing, it was to help kids kind of overcome this. Um, you talk about this, I don't know if it's a phenomenon or a reality, called food neophobia and the fact that, that pickiness might be a phase. Is that something? Yeah, yeah that's something you... I'll talk about that. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, like, brush aside, you know, the, the notion of pickiness or deny the reality of a parent who has a, a child who's very selective about food. I had a child, to my great surprise, mm-hmm. who was really resistant to fruits and vegetables, and I was stunned to have that child because I thought, well, I'm modeling good eating behavior. My husband is, you know, and, and that really threw me for a loop. So I don't mean to make it sound like, oh, this doesn't exist, but, you know, I did want to delve into you know, and I do this in one chapter, the some of the science around early taste formation and mm-hmm. early feeding practices, because I think this notion of picky eating does drive the whole, um, you know, kid food construct in our society, this idea that kids won't eat certain foods and yeah. therefore we have to give them these other foods. And so to get to your specific question, one thing that I learned is there is this thing called food neophobia. It's a expected stage in child development. It typically occurs in like late babyhood, early toddlerhood, and and it's usually when kids start to be able to, um, you know, eat finger food, when they start to be able to walk, and they will exhibit more fear of new foods or their their, um, universe of foods gets suddenly a lot smaller. And if I had known as a, as a new mom, you know, that that's expected, that that's coming down the pike, I think I would never have kind of overreacted the way I did when my son really exhibited that to a great degree. I think I could have ridden it out a little more comfortably if I'd known that this is just, you know, expected behavior. So that's one reason why I wanted to talk about it in the book, to kind of arm parents who don't have that information. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, this is an, a, a natural stage that you can just kind of relax about um, and it's going to get better. Versus like a lifetime sentence. <laughs> right. Now, there, are, but of course, you know, parents can compound that if suddenly you're like, oh, I've got a picky eater and he or she won't eat certain things. I'm going to stop serving them. Why mm-hmm. bother? You know, there's all kinds of ways we can, um, I think, entrench behaviors without even meaning to. Yeah. So what are the, and like, I think like anything, right, especially health related, prevention is the best course of action um, if and when possible. So you you 
discuss kind of some of the things that parents can do um, for like broadening your kids' palates and setting them on like a course for success early on. What are, can you yes. tell us a little bit about some of those? Yes. So, I mean, there were two things in particular. I mean, one, one thing that's fascinating, and I've learned about this in um, B. Wilson's book, First Bite, which I know you've read as well. It's a yeah. fantastic book about early taste formation. It's amazing. <sighs> and that's where I first learned of this thing called the flavor window, which is, again, a, a known developmental stage. Um, it's a period in which infants are particularly open to new flavors. And research seems to be showing that the more flavors you expose them to in that prime window, um, the broader their palate may be down the road. And, and at least one st- study I looked at that I talk about in the book, it kind of runs counter to some of the advice I'd gotten, which is that you should take it very, very slowly, one, mm. one vegetable at a time. I mean, it seemed to show that, you know, lots of vegetables in rapid succession um, had a greater impact in expanding kids' palates. So, again, that's information I think, you know, parents of, of babies just starting solid foods can really benefit from. Right. Now, of course, you know, many of us didn't know that at the time. Yeah. And, you know, there's no need to despair, but I think right. it is useful information for new parents. Well, and it's also, it starts way earlier than than thought. I mean, I think that there are still a lot of maybe like, pup, you know, health organizations and the leading kind of um, maybe like thinking or advice, um, at least so far as like breastfeed, like the longer you breastfeed and exclusively breastfeed, the better for your for your baby but actually the her research which you reference uh says that that flavor window starts at four months I know. So I really didn't know what to do with that because, yes. you know, I you know I definitely don't want to discourage anyone from breastfeeding. No, no. Um, and actually, I'll tell you something. I since have found out that the American Academy of Pediatrics says that if you are exclusively breastfeeding, you really should do it till six months before introducing solids, even if your baby is ready for solids earlier, hmm. which I found really interesting. And so I actually am going to make a, a little correction to, to one paragraph in the book in the next printing on that. But, um, you know, right. And, and, and many babies aren't even close to ready for solids at four months, and you certainly yeah. don't want to rush that in, in any way. So, you know, of course you have to wait till your baby's ready, till your, you and your pediatrician are ready to start solids. But then once you are ready, I think it's, it's great to know that, you know, variety and, and kind of a fearless approach is, is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, this also just speaks to the fact that, like, there's so much ongoing debate within the nutrition community broadly, and the science is continuing to develop. But yeah. But it's... Yeah. So I think just find it so fascinating um, and like such an exciting thing to be able to do um, to like shape your kids preferences early on. But in addition yeah. to, you know, to kind of what you feed them is is basically like the the overall approach. So um, you talk about Ellen Satter's work and um, the what is called the division of responsibility. Can you tell us about about what that what that is? Yeah, so this, I think, is really kind of the key. Um, so the division of responsibility is, is, I think, really widely accepted by child feeding experts. You know, the vast majority of them would say this is how you should be feeding your family. Mm-hmm. It, you know, parents and children have very different responsibilities at the table, and neither should jump over the line and start, you know, um, handling the other's responsibilities. So specifically, parents should be deciding what we're going to be eating at this meal, that's not to say you can't give kids choices, but the choices need to be within bounds you have decided. Like, you know, I'm making, um, you know, meatloaf tonight. Would you rather have mashed potatoes or would you rather have rice? That's okay, but you have decided the universe of foods to offer as opposed to, uh, what should we have for dinner tonight yeah. and letting your kids pick the menu. Yeah. So that's one key responsibility. Parents decide 
you know, when and where are we eating? Are we eating in front of the TV or are we eating at the table with no electronics? That's the parent's decision. It should mm-hmm. not be up to children. Um, that, that's where parents' job ends. And then it's really up to children and children alone to decide whether they're going to eat at that particular meal and how much they're going to eat. And, and what's, it's very, very hard, I think, for parents not to jump over that line. And, they, and there are all kinds of ways we do it without meaning to. Like, you know, I would just sometimes give my kids, a, you know, like a side eye of, if I put something down and they didn't try it. I would be so annoyed. I would just, like, you know, give them a little look. Yeah. Or I might even say, like, oh, you should try this. You know, take a bite. Or, you know, any kind of pressure like that, um, as well-meaning as it is, and as frustrating as it can be when your kids don't try something that you've made, the research shows pretty unequivocally that when we pressure children, it backfires. There's this one study I have in the book that I thought was just, it just said it all. Um, They had two groups of preschoolers, and and they were each given a little cups of an unfamiliar soup. I think it was like butternut squash soup. And one group was was kind of overtly pressured by their teacher. Like, you know, everyone try your soup. Come on, Mm -hmm. try it. You know, that kind of thing. The other group was just left alone. And it was the group that was pressured that had a much more negative reaction to the soup and would say things like, yuck, I'm not going to try it. So, it, you know, that, I think that's something that as hard as it is to just sit on your hands and let your kids explore at the table at their own pace, I mm-hmm. think that kind of research really validates that approach. So what would that mean for, you know, for the kind of age-all debate, which is like you go to bed hungry or you eat what is given to you? Like, I mean, and how, like, how personally, if you came up against that, especially with your son not wanting to eat fruits and vegetables at a certain point, how did you personally navigate those waters? So I think the whole, you know, you're going to bed hungry is a really tough thing for parents yeah. to do. And I'm not advocating that. And, and the thing is, Ellen Satter doesn't advocate that either. What she would say is, you, yes, it is your responsibility to decide what to serve, and no, you should not be short order cooking, by which I mean, you know, whatever you when, want. When yeah. You're, yeah, when your salmon doesn't go over, you jump up and make pizza or you right. know, that kind of thing. But she would say, you know, you should be thoughtful about this and you should always have something on the table that, like, you know your kids will eat. And she, she even says things like, you know, bread, just having bread on the table. And sure, maybe your kids can have bread and milk that night, but you need to just calm down and take the long view. Mm. Now, I. Uh, I've been in these shoes, and if your kid's eating bread and milk every night, that starts to get very worrisome. You right. know, you, I understand why parents would start to get worried about the overall healthfulness of their child's diet. She would say if you don't pressure children, they will, and you yourself are modeling good eating behavior at the table, they will, at their own pace, grow and explore and try. Um, I will say when I stopped pressuring my child, and it took me a really long time to learn not to do that, he did start trying new foods, to my complete surprise, you know, and now eats things that he never would have eaten, um, right. you know, back, back in the day. Wow. Okay. So that's, so that, I'm like, I feel like that is uh, really good advice. <laughs> and, yeah, and, you I know, mean, I'll just interject. I mean, if you, if you are trying to follow this advice and the kid's eating rice every night and you're freaking out, you know, I do have this whole appendix mm. of where I refer you to true child feeding experts who have yeah. entire books and websites devoted to, you know, ways that you can can kind of help kids along, not through pressure, but through, for example, 
you know they like this kind of food. Well, here's a way to kind of capitalize on that and, and, and bridge them over to this new food. You know, all kinds of techniques that are really their specialty. Right. You're um, once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, but it's really your book is a wonderful you know resource, and that includes references to other resources, which is you know so important to have that all in you know in one context. And um, you know, I just think it's that's 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 great. And you, certainly, you're very clear on you know, there's kind of like a dividing line between I would say like overall pickiness and it being a phase, and then parents starting to realize that it's something a little bit um, you know more of a bigger issue. Yes. Um, so feeding kids is obviously something that's like super emotional (laughs) for parents. I think, you know, it's like, I, I, am not a parent, but I can't imagine it would be just like so anxiety provoking to have a, you know, to feel like your child is not getting nourished because of what you're feeding them and, um, or their refusal to eat. So there are obviously a lot of pain points, which you call pain points in the book, um, that parents experience and that the industry is pretty quick to take advantage of these, um, you know, like weak, not weaknesses, but, um, sensitivities. So can you tell us like, what, what are some of those and what are some tactics that, you know, a few examples that industry has had a lot of success with? Yes. So I actually have a whole chapter called the claim game and it's really meant to be almost like a little field guide for parents. Like these are the ways they're trying to play you, you know? Um, and, and yes, I, you know, just as you said, like feeding children, it's very personal. It's very emotional. You, you, you know, parents across the economic spectrum, they want to do right by their kids. We generally know, you know, what kids should be eating. And it, and it's stressful and we're busy. We may not have time to cook, you know, all of that. And so one of the things they do is they, they very subtly or overtly send you the message, kids just won't eat healthier food, therefore turn to us. And, and mm-hmm. you know, that might sound like an exaggeration, but there was an ad campaign um, most recently, uh, it was right when I was finishing my manuscript, and I was like, literally, like, call the editor, like, we've got to get this in, because it's such a good example. It was Kraft, um, and it was an ad campaign for their mac and cheese and also their shredded cheese. And they literally would show parents putting down a healthy meal in front of their kids. The kids make gagging noises, or they run away, and then the parent puts down the mac and cheese or the tacos with the shredded cheese and suddenly there's like happy music and and everyone's calm and happy you know it it couldn't be more overt and you know sometimes it's more subtle but the the gist is this is hopeless you know so let us help you um and then and then kind of a, a a complimentary marketing message is our food is like the equivalent of the fruits and vegetables your kids aren't eating and and that is a huge huge um marketing ploy in the world of foods you know, intended for babies, toddlers, and children. Like, yeah. you'll see... Like, you know, fortified, like those, fortification, things like that. Yes, and, like, you know, those toddler puffs that contain kale and contain spinach. <sighs> and, yeah. you know, sure, they might have a dusting, but they're in no way the equivalent of giving your child spinach. But it's it's just a way to make parents feel better, and it's a food that children will always eat because it's really just snack food. Yeah. And so that's another really common marketing ploy. That, that it ha- they've... Ha- had a lot of success with certainly I mean that's I think why we're even talking about kid food it's like all founded on the idea that like your kid won't eat healthy food which is exactly drives me obviously crazy but (laughs) um so you talk about um like a like a dusting of broccoli right and some of these um processed foods that are masquerading as being healthier a little bit healthier and this brings up something I really want to talk about, um, which is mom shaming. And, um, you know, I first want to, like, little story, want to say that 
I believe there's no more judged group um, than mothers. And I don't want to be that person, especially somebody without kids who can pass judgment on something that, you know, parents are feeding their kids. But I'm like, but, <laughs> but let me continue. Um, my friend posted the other day on Instagram a picture of two four-ozen corn dogs and tater tots. And, you know, it was like with the caption that was like, when, when you just like your husband's traveling and you're just done at the end of a long week. And I was like, I am not going to mom shame but can I food shame <laughs> on, this, on this point? It just sort of blew my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is something you've come across in the past, but um, what are your thoughts on like, on, on corn dogs? What are your thoughts on corn dogs, Bettina? <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on corn dogs? Um, well, let me start with mom shaming. Yeah. I think that's really important. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I really want people to know um how much I strive in this book not to mom shame because I, 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 you know, there's so many forces at work in our, in our own personal lives and these societal forces and corporate forces pushing us in this direction. Um, so I do not stand in judgment of anyone. I serve my kids all kinds of, you know, frozen fried things when they were growing up. So I, you know, I am not, um, casting stones at anyone. Yeah. In terms of that particular meal that you saw, I mean, I think so much depends on context. Um, like, yeah, well, like here's wait, an example. Like, not, like, not, to, not to just cut you off, but just she that clarified that they were turkey dog, turkey corn dogs, and broccoli tots. And I was like, again, also blew my mind that these are things that are uh, like – Thing, that these are things, but okay, right. sorry, that's sorry. That's a great, that's a great example. Like the broccoli tot, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what those really are. Like no, I, I would, I would need to see the box, but yes. you know, that's an example of we're going to make you feel better about this product, which, which, you know, maybe it's all broccoli and it's fine, but it, it might it's just not. be a dusting of broccoli. It's just, not 100% not. Yeah. It was like, it's like a tater yeah. tot that's branded as a broccoli tot. Right, right. But, but I guess what I was going to say is, like, so much is, depends on context. Like, if, if, if the whole family is sitting down to dinner one night and it's like, you know what, we're going to have this fun meal of corn dogs and broccoli dots and everyone's eating it, that's different and, and, and perfectly fine. You know, I don't mm-hmm. judge that. It's, it, what, what worries me and I think what, where we, we parents run into trouble is I, mom and dad, are going to eat this healthier meal, but you, since you, you don't like these foods, I'm giving you corn dogs and tots. Then you're sending kids a different message, which mm-hmm. is this is your kid food. You can't eat salmon, you know, or whatever the issue is. And I think that, so that's one thing to think about. Um, and the second thing I'd say is, you know, these sorts of foods just, you know, as, as, as treats, as, as fun occasions, you know, again, that's not, I, I don't judge that at all. It's more, I'm, I'm just concerned about the overall quality of American children's diets these days. And yeah. what I learned in researching kid food is they're pretty, it's, you know, Abysmal. pretty subpar yeah. I across think, the economic spectrum, you know. Right, which is a, which is an, a, an important point. I think for me, it was just this like, like a corn dog, like I just can't get past a cor- buying corn dogs. <laughs> like <a> thing, period. <laughs> but um, I should, you know, this person is a amazing mother and like, just super successful, lovely, like educated, like incredible person. And so, but I think it's just, it's something that is obviously every 
person struggles, every parent struggles with in terms of like feeding and time and navigating the marketing claims and all of those things. Right. And there are always going to be those nights where it's just like, I'm done. I'm, you know, we're just, we're just going to get everyone fed and I'm putting the nuggets in the oven and and that's dinner and that's fine. Again, I'm not, I'm not standing in judgment of that at all. And I did the same thing. I'm just, I'm more worried about this sort of larger phenomenon of like kids you know, constantly being kind of bombarded with this sort of food and being given a very clear message of this is your food. Right, your food. You can't eat anything else. Yeah. Like, that's where I think we run into really more systemic problems. I mean, like, what about for – so I, yes, and then also just to totally be transparent, you I want I love in the book you reference um, in kind of talking about, like, kids that – or foods that, you know, were made to be – maybe a bit more healthy, but they're still ultra processed. Like you referenced Amy's frozen pizza and Bell and Evans chicken nuggets. And I was like, I a hundred percent have both of those things in my freezer right now. So maybe I'm a hypocrite, but, but no, they're delicious. And they, they, those, I would say those two items are like very, they're like the best that you can probably get for that type of, of food. But, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's hard to feed yourself and pizza and chicken nuggets are delicious. Right. This is delicious. <laughs> and again, you know, I hope I'm making clear. I you are. Yes. Have a place yes. In our lives. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't condemn any particular food, but like this kind of gets to one of the, you I, know, I condemn um, corn dogs I, <laughs> that I talk about in that chapter, the claim oh, yeah. game, which is beige washing. Like this yeah. idea that, you know, the, the bright red box of Cheez-Its, at your grocery store, you know, kind of screams at you, big food, yeah, we know highly processed. Yeah. And then and then in your in Whole Foods when it's back to nature and it's and it's a beige box mm-hmm. and the ingredients may be slightly better, you might approach that snack very differently. It might seem like a healthier choice for you or your kids. Right. And and all I wanted to point out by mentioning Bell and Evans and Amy's is at bottom, yes, they may have a health uh, you know, a better ingredient profile or a cleaner label but at bottom they're not so different nutritionally mm-hmm. and they're certainly not so different in terms of, of how we're shaping our children's palate so that was the only point I was trying to make yeah no and, and it's true and you know what I'm gonna people are going to be like why do you talk about food because you've just referenced like 12 things that are delicious and highly processed because I was gonna say like Cheez-Its are also great oh like, it's delicious. Just, yes god they really have won you know they <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, so they've really perfected making food like as highly palatable as process pro- exactly. as possible, they being the food industry. Okay, we are going to take a really quick commercial break. But when we get back, we are going to talk all about marketing to children. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Huertas. Huertas serves Basque-influenced fare, evoking the lively eating and drinking culture of northern Spain and creatively inspired by our home in NYC. Consider Huertas for your next event. Their private room is perfect for work dinners, baby showers, and birthday parties. There's even a small patio attached. Learn more at huertasnyc.com. That's H-U-E-R-T-A-S-N-Y-C.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I have the pleasure of speaking with Bettina Elias Siegel, author of her new book, Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World. So speaking of the food industry, um, like food marketing to children is um, big business. What does that landscape look like in terms of like how big of an, how many many dollars are going into uh, targeting kids specifically these days? 
So we don't have, like, the most current figure, but the last time when the FTC subpoenaed the industry, um, the figure came to be just under $2 billion a year collectively spent by the food and beverage industries to market their products just to children. So obviously they're spending billions and billions more to market products to the rest of us. And, of course, kids are seeing some of that advertising also. But for their child-specific advertising, it came to just under $2 billion a year. So we have no reason to think that that number has changed. It may be more... That was a while, and that was like a while ago, right? Yes, I think that most recent figure came from two thousand nine. Yeah. I want to say. So, I mean, I can't believe that's over a decade ago. But right. yeah, and I, um, I think that you broke it down further in a way in the book that like, so these like I'm like two billion. What does that really mean? But when you phrase it in like, I think one of the things you wrote was like twenty five million dollars every single hour, every single day for a year like yes I think it was like 200 a quarter of a million dollars yeah I think that's what it was a quarter, or quarter of a million, million not 25 yeah oh god right but yeah still, quarter of a million insane. yeah, yeah it's that's insane. insane it's it's an insane amount of money yeah. just targeted at your children also, and that, I, and that, that figure was way off in my head by the way no, <laughs> I'm terrible at math Bettina <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it really does it, – it's kind of jaw-dropping when you think about that. And then then you have to factor in the fact that children – you know, we're, we're obviously – we adults are obviously very susceptible to advertising or, or companies wouldn't pay for it. It's effective even on cynical, hardened adults. But, yeah. but this money is being targeted at vulnerable children who, you know, cognitive research shows they don't even – distinguish between advertising and the television show, you know, until maybe age five. And even after that, they don't understand that they're being persuaded to do something. So they're really so, so incredibly vulnerable. And the idea that we allow companies to target them that way is really um, something I am very passionate about and feel very strongly about. What are some of the tactics that they use? I mean, like we, I think of kind of using beloved cartoon figures, that's a huge and incredibly um, powerful weapon in their arsenal, which is to use cartoon characters, television characters, movie characters, whatever the most popular character du jour is. You mm. know, they they you know license the right to use those characters because what they're doing is they're essentially buying children's emotional attachment and slapping it onto their product, and it's very effective. Children. You know, research shows they actually prefer the flavor of an identical product if it's bearing their, you know, a character on it. So that just says it all. It's an incredibly powerful technique. And, you know, they do all kinds of, you know, classic marketing like they make the unhealthy food look especially cool or, you know, you, you know, the kind of hip, you know, the celebrities are enjoying it or, you know, kids you know, looking like they're getting in with their peers when they eat this particular food. I mean, they yeah. use all the sort of standard techniques. And then there are all these new digital techniques that they're using, which are also very powerful. Right. Social media, smartphone apps, all of that. Yeah, I imagine the the landscape has changed dramatically with the rise of, I mean, just the ubiquity of, of smartphones. And for, for kids at a much younger age. Yes. And one one thing that's especially troubling there is, you know, who knows how much oversight parents have over their children's TV watching because they're not typically 
sitting right there with them, but they could. But with a phone or an iPad, that's almost always out of parents' oversight. And so kids are being marketed to online, I think, in ways that parents don't appreciate. Um, and, it, and it can be especially, you know, even teenagers who we would like to think are less vulnerable, I think they're very vulnerable because a lot of this advertising is so subtle. It's woven into their video game in terms of product placements. Um, it's, it's, it's celebrities appearing in their social media feed, and they don't realize they're being paid for that sponsorship, you know, stuff like that. So it is a very um, insidious and powerful new way of reaching children. Yeah. Um, no, that's, a, I think, the ex- exactly the exactly the word um, that I would use. So what I would be remiss if I didn't kind of touch on your, um, you know, on school food, which is a a chapter in your book where, um, which is, you know, obviously kind of how you got your start. So where does school food fit in the overall picture of, um, you know, what you're, what you're working on, you know, what you like your main point of the book? Well, I mean, school food is so important. It's, you know, 30 million or so kids a day in America are eating school food, and about two-thirds of those kids are doing it because they're, you know, economically dependent on the meal. They're getting it for free or at a reduced subsidized price. So, you know, what we're feeding kids in that cafeteria every day, you know, really matters nutritionally, and it also matters in terms of the messages they're getting about what food should be, you know, what a meal should look like. Even kids who are bringing a sack lunch are seeing that too in their in their cafeteria. So it's really important that we get those meals right. I would say we are in a much better place, obviously, thanks to, you know, the Obama-era Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. We mm-hmm. have much improved nutritional standards, new regulations about the kinds of foods that can be sold a la carte, you know, like in the snack line. So, you know, no question, I think we're doing a, a much better job. I think there are all kinds of exciting things happening in cafeterias around the country, you know, t- more effort to scratch cook and all of that. But, you know, as I talk about in that chapter, I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. One issue is just the chronic underfunding of the program that Mm -hmm. makes it so very hard for districts to scratch cook. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the ones that are pulling it off often have outside assistance of some sort. Um, so I think that's a big issue. Um, we Right now, the regulations don't have any kind of cap on added sugars. So where you especially see that um, being problematic is in our school breakfasts, which are often very, very sugary in yeah. a lot of districts around the country. I mean, like crazy sugary. Yeah. Um, so that's an issue. And then, you know, a problem that I really would love to see um, ameliorated is this issue of copyright, uh, sorry, copycat mm-hmm. um, foods, which are foods, you know, produced by big food companies that bear the same junk food brand names and trademarks and, um, you know, mascots and and packaging that kids are used to, like Domino's and Cheetos and Pop-Tarts. And no one is telling children that the foods bearing those brands in their cafeteria are slightly tweaked nutritionally. And so we're still giving kids a message often every single day that it's okay to be eating Pop-Tarts and and Domino's. And I think that is a, a really troubling message in our cafeterias right um so lots of work to do in the school on the school food front obviously <laughs> in I addition mean, pro- lots of progress but still work to be done yeah well, I guess yeah I would describe it like everything in the food movement right yes um so what when we when we get back to marketing to kids because you this is something you you know focus a lot on in the book what are some of the things being done to date at least maybe like at the federal regulatory level to address this issue or or 
is the answer like not much? <laughs> so the answer really is not much. And so what we have instead is this industry self-regulation that's now um, been going on for about 10 years. And it's called the Children's Food and Beverage Advertising Initi- Initiative, the CFBAI. And it, it includes as its members, I think, 18 or 19 of the largest food companies, food and beverage companies out there. So it's all the big names. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, on paper, it sounds really good. You know, they, they say, we're only going to market healthier dietary choices to children. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to put unhealthy, char- uh, you know, characters on unhealthy food, you know, things like that. Yeah. So it sounds great on paper. It's just the standards themselves are so weak that really, you know, while I would say modest improvements have been made, we're still, you know, kids are still advertised all kinds of unhealthy foods and drinks even 10 years later. Yeah. So self-regulation, not a big, not a, not a very effective tool so far in common, in curbing kind of unhealthy marketing to kids. Well, here's a, here's a great way of sort of bringing this home. You know, they, they set their own standard for what constitutes a healthier dietary choice that you can advertise to children. And even after 10 years of this, the list still includes Frosted Flakes, Lucky Charms, you know, Kid Cuisine, Popcorn Chicken, you know, so, so you can see that they're always going to be protecting their bottom line. And, and and that's, you know, how could we expect otherwise from industries, right? I mean, you know, ultimately they're for-profit businesses and they're only going to regulate them to a degree that they can tolerate from a profit standpoint. Yeah. So what is the role then? I mean, so it sounds like um, I'm, like consumers have a role to play in terms of what they you know demand from these companies, but it seems like this is an, an area that's kind of like more ripe for government intervention. Um, I think so. I yeah. mean, I think, I think we have pretty good proof now that after 10 years, you know, self-regulation is not getting the job done. And, and, you know, one thing I think a lot of parents may not be aware of is other countries have banned the yeah. advertising of unhealthy foods and drinks to children. Like, they've just t- stepped up and done it. And so the, the latest example is Chile. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's worth Googling this. They, they Just as an example, you know, there's the box of Frosted Flakes with Tony the Tiger. And now... Tony can't be on the box in Chile anymore. Wow. It, you know, it's down to that level. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think American parents, were, we just take it for granted that these industries can come after our children, stoke our children's desire for well, unhealthy they, food, they set leave the it standard. up to us to have to battle with them in the grocery store. Yeah. And I don't think they're aware that that's something we could be pushing for. Yeah, no, it's like it's like industry gets to set all baseline, all of the baselines. And if you push back on that, you're like, advocating for the nanny state and anti-american <laughs> right it's really right. Imp- it's really impressive how they make that connection <laughs> they manage right. to make that connection um so yeah so that's an uphill battle though for us in this country it, it is an uphill battle and yet again i don't i don't know to what extent parents are have been mobilized on that issue or you know if as a political block we demanded it, you know, that would be pretty powerful. And and I would think this is something that should appeal to parents on both sides of the aisle because you're not asking to take products off the market or restrict choice. All you're saying is if you think your product is worth, you know, my child consuming, you let me know. You know, I'm the decision maker in the family. You advertise to me. There's no need to bring my kids into the equation and encourage them to pester me. And I mm-hmm. think that's an argument that should appeal to people on all, you know, ends of the political spectrum. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, you, you also talk about how this is an issue that consumers need to vote on. I mean, yes. let me just stop. Like, consumers need to vote, period. Yes. <laughs> 
And also, you know, only then I would say vote on vote on food issues. How how can you kind of like through your advocacy work, um, like have you seen an uptick on um, the kind of movement like of general kind of consumers and people, you know, in your network, like talking to their elected officials and voting on food issues? Or do you think that we're still like really not even at the starting gate on this? I mean, I think food issues are definitely being discussed more than ever before, um, which is really encouraging. Um, You know, it's just one example, like, you know, a few of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates have made um, universal school lunch uh, a campaign yeah. issue, you know, and it's really been motivated by this outcry about lunch shaming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's really interesting to me. That's something I had not seen discussed in prior elections. Um, you know, and I think it's up to us to be to be asking these questions and, and you know, asking where our candidates stand on these issues. Absolutely. Um, so we are, we are going to have to wrap up in just one minute, but I do um, want to ask you, Knowing what you know now and realizing that you became, you know, deeply involved in these issues when your kids were a bit older at eight and 10, are there things that you would have done differently? And has your approach to certain challenges changed over time? Definitely when it comes to some of that early feeding um, practices that we talked about earlier, I really do think I would have changed those for sure. Um, I would have as we were talking about, I would have known about food neophobia, been less freaked out about it. I would have tried to be um, more thoughtful about introducing fruits and vegetables early on and, and a little more aggressive about it. And, and again, just to, just to prove to everyone listening that I'm not standing in judgment, I really fell for a lot of these marketing claims, the the snack, you know, coated with the kale dust and all of that, you know, in part because those foods are convenient, your kids like them. And I really wish I had, had, had been more cautious about introducing those foods early because I do think we can, they can shape children's palates in ways that make the acceptance of truly healthy whole food even harder. Um, I also wanted to ask, in, you know, so we've talked about the, the not the downside, but some of the really bad things that the industry has done along um, the food front and especially related to kid food. But have you seen, has there been any example of a company or an initiative who has made voluntary, like big kind of a meaningful uh, change in in something, in anything. <laughs> Have you seen anything like encouraging coming from industry that we can like be proud of and, you know, champion in a way for them? Well, I do think some of these newer startup kind of companies are very in touch with I think today's parents' increasing demand for ingredient transparency and um, you know, better nutritional profiles for their packaged foods. So I think to some extent the market is shaping better choices. Um, on the restaurant menu front, there definitely have been some improvements. I mean, you know, you, you can decide how important you think this is, but, uh, you know, many major chains have now, uh, you know, through pressure, particularly from the um, Center for Science and the Public Interest and other advocates, have changed the default beverage on their children's menus. Mm. So whereas it used to be, when you paid for a meal, you just automatically got soda for your child. Now you have to ask for soda, and the default beverage is going to be water or milk or juice. So that may sound like a small change, but when you're talking about, you know, a huge chain, you know, that's affecting a lot of families every single day, and I think that's worth, you know, noting. Um, 
and so you know i think i think there are hopeful signs and i think a, a lot of this does depend on on consumer demand you know if they know that we want something better mm-hmm. they they have every economic incentive to supply it are there any you know a, a couple of kind of key points you would like to leave um, with our listeners in terms of like, what would you like to see done? Maybe, maybe like pie in the sky. And then are there certain ways that people can get involved? People listening can get involved. Well, I mean, I think my first goal really was just to kind of validate parents. Like I think it is very hard to raise healthy eaters in this society. And I just wanted to, you know, if you're feeling that, I wanted to validate you and also explain why. So, like, in each of these contexts, just try to give you a little sense of what is really going on here. Um, and then sort of my next higher goal for the book is to try to encourage advocacy. And that can be, you know, I don't want to say smaller because that devalues it, just more personal kind of advocacy. Like, you know, one of the chapters in the book is 14 rules for just kind of engaging face-to-face mm-hmm. on these questions. Like, you know, how do I ask my soccer coach to – just keep it fruit and water and not Gatorade and Rice Krispie Treats? You know, Mm -hmm. how can I broach that conversation? So, you know, that kind of thing. Or or ask my school, could we not have junk food on birthdays? Could we do something else to celebrate birthdays? So that's, you know, the kind of the second goal. And then the, the, the loftiest goal, yes, is to be thinking about these broader issues. Like, you know, if we could muster the political will, we could ban junk food advertising to children, and that would be a huge step in improving their food landscape, you know, yeah. huge. Um, or we could better better fund our school meal programs so we could see more of the scratch cooking and the more whole foods that I think so many of us would like to see. So it's really kind of like three levels of, of goals for the book. Yeah, yeah, all super, super important. Okay, so final, final question, I promise. Where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Oh, that's a nice question. <laughs> really, on any online bookseller, um, you know, Amazon, of course, but also IndieBound or, you know, any, any of the booksellers you use online. And in many bookstores, um, also brick and mortar is available. And also an audiobook now, which I'm glad about. Great. And for more information, they can go to The Lunch Tray? The Lunch Tray or also my author website, which is BettinaSiegel.com. Okay, great. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Bettina, thank you so much for coming on the show. And congratulations on this fabulous book. Oh, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. (laughs) For me too. All right. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors as well and to the one and only Jeet Paul, the best show engineer in the entire world. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.